My name is Jeremy Lim, and I'm based in Singapore, and I'm in the Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity Southeast Asia program. Singapore is a small, compact city, and it is a city-state. Roughly one-third of the workforce comprises foreigners, and of this, roughly 1.2, 1.3 million would be fairly low-wage migrant workers, mainly from really South Asia as well as China. And they function in many different roles in construction, in some of the cleaning services, and also in domestic work. Hi, I'm Tarani Loganathan. I'm from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I'm part of the Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity in Southeast Asia. Malaysia is a upper-middle-income country, highly dependent on migrant workers. At least 10% of our population are migrant workers, so up to 6 million of the population are migrant workers. 2 million of them are documented, so we would estimate a large sum of them are undocumented. We also have a large group of refugees and asylum seekers, about 180,000 registered in Malaysia. The large bulk of non-citizens in Malaysia are labour migrants working in multiple industries, in construction, manufacturing, plantations, service, in jobs that locals don't want to do. This is Lawrence Aritao. I'm with the Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity in Southeast Asia. I'm calling from the Philippines. The Philippines is really more of a sending country when it comes to migrant workers, although recently We've seen quite an increase in migrant workers connected to Philippine offshore gaming operations to the tune of about 126,000 workers, three-fourths of whom are Chinese. Singapore is really well known as a very high-income, comfortable city. However, a lot of the comfort for the high-income group is built upon the labour of the low-income migrant workers who are largely in the construction, in the cleaning, and in the various services that really Singaporeans do not want to do. Under Singapore law, migrant workers are actually very well taken care of and medical benefits are supposed to be fully provided for by the employers. However, in practice, many times the workers are afraid of the employers are not reimbursing them after seeking medical care, and hence there are some practical barriers to really accessing healthcare on an outpatient basis. For hospitalization services, every worker has to be insured for a minimum of 15,000 Singapore dollars. This may sound like a good sum of money, but because the migrant workers are treated as foreigners. They don't enjoy any subsidies in the government hospitals. And in an expensive city such as Singapore, $15,000 doesn't go very far when it comes to healthcare. So the migrant workers, typically from a health point of view, lead a decent life, but they are vulnerable because they don't have the institutional structures to provide for any catastrophic injuries or illnesses. What about in Malaysia, Tarani? In Malaysia, we are highly dependent on our migrant workers. We have a two-tier healthcare system in Malaysia. We have public-private healthcare system. Our public system is highly subsidised and almost free for Malaysians. But for non-citizens, they charge a much higher rate because they're not entitled to the subsidies that citizens take for granted. Private healthcare is for profit, you have to pay out of pocket for it. In Malaysia, the documented migrant workers are covered by compulsory workplace insurance. 
but the coverage for that is only about 20,000 ringgit and it's only for hospitalization and surgery in public hospitals. Healthcare cost is a big deterrent for migrants because they do not get coverage for outpatient care at all. That one, mostly migrants pay out of pocket for. Very few employers provide healthcare because they don't have to. It's not part of our Employment Act. And insurance does not cover outpatient care. The quantum of insurance is also very little because 20,000 ringgit can just pass through like that. The undocumented workers do not have any social protections because they're not supposed to be there. So they do not have access to healthcare. They do not have access to the healthcare insurance that we're talking about. We also do not have social security benefits that documented workers have. The other major barrier for healthcare access is the fact that at healthcare facilities, when you're talking about public MOH facilities, any person going there has to present documents. So they have to present their IC if they're Malaysian. Or if you're a migrant worker, non-citizen, you have to show your passport and your work permit. And healthcare professionals are obligated to report them to immigration or the police if they come across undocumented workers. It's a big deterrent. So um, undocumented workers are very afraid of going to healthcare. They will not seek care unless they really need it. So they are very, very vulnerable. Well, I am glad we don't have the same situation here in Singapore, maybe because we are so small and compact and so tightly policed. We have hardly any um, illegal or really undocumented migrant workers. Maybe can we pass the law to describe what the situation is in the Philippines? The Philippines is in a different position in that we're a source country. We have currently about 2.3 million workers around the world by the latest estimates. The economy is actually quite dependent on the remittances that come in from these workers to the tune of about 33.5 billion US dollars. That was for 2019. There's an interesting relationship that the Philippines has with the countries that also depend on the kind of work and labor that overseas Filipino workers can provide. One major legislation that exists within our laws to protect migrant workers has to do with protecting Filipino migrant workers who leave, setting up systems so that they receive support in the countries where they finally land and get their jobs. So that's been the case for about two or three decades now. We also have a two-tiered health system with a public health system that provides mostly subsidies for citizens. If you look at the charter of the Philippine General Hospital, for example, one of its purposes is to provide affordable health care to Filipino citizens. But also historically, there hasn't been as much incentive or demand to provide lower health care for expats that are in the Philippines because historically... Expats working in the Philippines have access to high-paying jobs and are typically from a different demographic. I say historically, but in the past maybe 12, 18 months, we've actually seen a very steady rise in Chinese workers that are involved in Philippine offshore gaming operations, many of whom are also undocumented. And it's reached the extreme end of the spectrum, where we also started seeing a rise in human trafficking cases where victimization was linked to the Philippine offshore gaming operations. And so now I think our legislature has to grapple with this idea that we're now also a receiving country and that some of our industries are linked to an increase in migrant workers here. And how do we actually extend protections? 
So do you see legislation coming up? Because what I'm hearing from you now is that it is such a recent phenomenon that the system hasn't quite adapted to managing. What do you see happening in the next couple of years to really provide for this group? The system needs to be tested for us to understand the legislation that's required. And we're actually undergoing a series of those tests. When the human trafficking incidences rose, perhaps in the last 12 to 18 months, the Interagency Council that oversees the enforcement of the anti-trafficking law, you know, they had to ask questions on how did so many come in? Do we now have gaps in immigration? Are we now unable to provide protection at the border, for example? There's a real problem if you're able to come in and you're undocumented. The Philippine Health Insurance Corporation will not allow a foreigner to register unless they have an alien certificate of registration, which means you have to have come in legally. And your status also has to be legal before you can receive protection. So that's one. There's a gap there. And as these test cases roll out, that's where we see all the different gaps that we have as a receiving country. And as I said, we're a novice at this. And so there's just a lot of learning to be done. I think to be realistic, legislation would be perhaps two to three years down the road. But surely learnings can come from other countries also. And it certainly sounds like Malaysia has been living with the undocumented workers for quite a couple of years. Baby Tarani, could you share with us what in practice happens, whether they're documented or otherwise they really still fall sick, they do get injured? In practice, there are a lot of barriers to healthcare access. So if you're documented, it's a bit easier because you have that support net of healthcare insurance. But there is a lot of fear involved and distrust. The increase in the fees of public healthcare facilities for non-citizens actually happened fairly recently. What people on the ground know is it's too expensive. We can't afford it. Literally, we can't pay the bills. We have to call family, we have to call NGOs, we have to call embassies to pay the bills for us. So they will avoid healthcare at any point. And things like checking documents, even people who are documented with passports and so on, a lot of them feel a lot of fear because you do not carry it with you when you're going out. A lot of times, the employers actually withhold the passports because they say, we don't want the workers to run away. There's laws against that, but it happens in practice. So that means they have to ask their employer, can I have my passport? Can you take me to healthcare? Get permission, which is not convenient, not good. The undocumented have no healthcare. For us, probably the most vulnerable group, since we don't have undocumented workers, would be the workers who don't have employers. What does happen is the workers do get fired, they do get injured, and the employer then decides that he doesn't want to be their employer anymore, and then they're stuck in essentially legislative limbo. And that's where NGOs such as HealthServe, which is an NGO that I do contribute to, come in. We then provide financial support for the three meals a day and some sheltering, as well as all the necessary healthcare. Because what uh, typically happens is that workers do get injured and if they're not able to go back to work for long periods, the employers elect to not have them on the payroll anymore. And they then become essentially the labour equivalent of being stateless. And someone needs to look after them during the time that the processing for workmen's compensation for insurance come in. And, and unfortunately, this process can take many months. And during that period, that's where the NGOs really step up. And at least here in Singapore, we've been very, very fortunate that there are a number of NGOs that are very committed and very passionate about this. 
And so the system, while I wouldn't say that it works, it does really chug along as best it can. I was mentioning earlier that we were in the middle of this learning process on how to better care for migrant workers here in the Philippines and COVID-19 hits. Obviously, that puts a pause on most of what was going on. One of the knee-jerk reactions of our country was to say any Filipinos who uh, feel that they would be safer home can go home. Resources were immediately deployed to repatriate anyone who felt that they needed to return. And as of April 25, there were about 19,466 Filipinos who were repatriated. 15,000 of them were sea-based. 4,300 or so were land-based. According to our government statistics, about 12,000 of them were considered stranded, meaning that due to the situation, about 12,000 were in a situation where they needed rescue or the kind of assistance where the government had to intervene and bring them home. Was this mainly in China or in parts of the world where there had been lockdowns at very short notice? The majority were seafarers, so they could have been anywhere in the world at that point. For the 4,336 land-based, I don't have the disaggregated statistics. I do know that they tried to bring home quite a good number from China. They tried to hand out what you would call economic first aid to these individuals. The government appropriated around 10,000 pesos per person which I think maybe realistically would supply you with food. Maybe it's resources for about two to three weeks in the Philippines. As soon as many of them had landed, they started to realize that a good number of them so wanted to return because they felt that they couldn't survive here. There were no jobs waiting for them, obviously. And we're in the middle of trying to deal with this pandemic as well. And so the government actually had to work on facilitating the return of some of the overseas Filipino workers so that they could provide for themselves. In Malaysia also, we started our lockdown fairly early. I mean, compared to the other ASEAN countries, we started on March the 18th and it was short notice. The Prime Minister gave us two days notice. There's a large group of these Malaysian workers who actually work in Singapore but live in Malaysia, so they commute daily. These guys actually opted to stay on in Singapore and some of them got stranded. I think Jeremy could tell us more about that. Yes, and I think that the migrant worker has put Singapore in the international spotlight for probably all the wrong reasons. But I would say that really despite all the difficulties, you do see the best of human nature. And if I start with the Malaysians who crossed the border to come into Singapore to work, very heartwarming that many Singaporeans, many of their co-workers then opened their homes to them so that they would have a roof over their head and the government also opened some of the public sports halls and provided bedding so that they could tide over for this period while their employers scrambled to look for alternate housing. But the big challenge that Singapore's grappling with now is the outbreak of COVID-19 in the worker dormitories. We have almost a million migrant workers who are on work permits, which means that they're not very well paid. And because they're not well paid, they tend to live in these purpose-built dormitories to keep the cost down. They are quite congested, 12, 20 persons sharing a room. They have lived in this way for many years, but it also means that from a public health point of view, they are very vulnerable. And just how vulnerable they are, I don't think anyone fully recognized until COVID-19 started to sweep through the dorms. And in one of the largest dorms with just under 20,000 persons, over 2,000 cases of COVID-19 have already been diagnosed. And every day, 
the vast majority of the new cases that have put Singapore into the league table of the third highest number of cases largely come from this migrant worker community. Many people have come forward with financial donations to donate food, clothes and everything to help the workers. And we certainly hope that in a post-COVID time, there are very fundamental questioning of the values that drive Singapore and what sort of Singapore do we want to have in the future, not just for us as Singaporeans, but for everyone who lives in Singapore. Um, Malaysia, we've been on lockdown since March. So we closed down all except the essential services and people are not allowed out of their houses for non-essential work. So migrant workers especially are very affected because they can't go out and earn a living. The big problem for them right now is food. In terms of health, our Malaysian healthcare system is doing quite well. We've actually controlled our number of cases quite a lot. Our cases are being detected, tested and isolated quite rapidly. But my worry is actually the migrant community because there's a large group of them that are undocumented and they are not in dormitories like Singapore. They are actually within the community and some of them are in places that you can't find them because they do not want to be found. Our documented migrant workers in Malaysia do not have dormitories like in Singapore. Different industries have different sort of accommodations. They have something that they call kongsi. It's basically like containers and very crowded and so on. We have a lot of laws as well, but enforcement of it is not very good. So where they live is usually overcrowded, unsanitary because there's not enough water. Because the workers work in shifts, they don't all stay in at the same time. But when you are under a lockdown, all the migrant workers are in one room. And as I said earlier, they had these problems of accessing care in terms of their distrust authorities. They don't want to go to seek care because they're scared that they will check their documentation and they will get deported. So all these fears still remain in Malaysia right now, and COVID-19 actually amplifies it. Tarani, I fully understand what you mean, but I do hope that it gives us the opportunity to then rebuild and to build something even better so that life can be better for everybody. Exactly, and it also magnifies the good points in societies because civil society has stepped up. They are the ones who actually make sure that people are not starving and distribute aid and come to the rescue for a lot of people. The other group that's really excellent is our health service. The Ministry of Health is in the spotlight because they are doing quite a good job. Just to add a little bit more depth to our discussion on how it is in the Philippines, let me start with the migrant workers under the international definition of migrant workers. You're engaged in remunerated activity in a state where you're not a citizen. We have the expat community here. They're less at risk on account of globally effective health insurance, higher pay, amassed resources or access to those resources in the event of a medical need or crisis. And then you have a group that's in the middle. They're migrant workers in higher paying but less stable work, actors, models, so-called influencers, a small but growing population. So they have high paying work but less buffers for catastrophic medical costs and less of a social network within the Philippines where they can actually tap into resource in case of, again, catastrophic medical costs. Then you also have a new, and this is what I was talking about earlier, the less regulated subset of migrant workers in the Philippine offshore gaming operations. Three-fourths of them are from China, at least those who are registered and fully documented. And this is the most challenging subset to provide the protections for. 
Jeremy was talking about the dormitory-like conditions of some workers in Singapore that's mirrored in some situations here where you have workers that are living in very packed areas, making them vulnerable, but not vulnerable to the naked eye because we're not fully aware of the danger they're exposed to. And we were only given a clue to their vulnerability and the different endangerment that they're exposed to when the human trafficking cases increase. And these were sex trafficking cases. The hypothesis of our legislature was that the rise in these cases linked to the POGO industry, Philippine offshore gaming operations, was because there were thriving sex dens exclusively offering Chinese women to this growing number of laborers in the Philippine offshore gaming operations. And we were just in the middle of trying to understand that when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Having this COVID-19 crisis, I think we have learned from Singapore in the sense that we watched with fear what's happening in your dormitory situation. As we know, our problem is like five times larger as in the scale of our migrant workers are that much more and they are not so easily found in dormitories here everywhere. I think the Ministry of Health has been quite proactive in the sense that they have been going out and testing people who are in risk areas. So those people who came in contact to a group gathering of cases and then also targeted areas, they've been issuing a stricter form of quarantine, a lockdown. And all those people in that area are screened and tested. The worry is we still have the barriers that are still there. The Ministry of Health has given a moratorium on healthcare fees. So non-citizens actually who are tested positive for COVID do not have to pay healthcare fees. But that is still a barrier because if you're sick, how would you know you've got COVID or not? I mean, you're sick. So the migrant worker is actually taking a risk going to seek healthcare because they might be charged. If they don't have COVID, they have to pay for their healthcare costs. The more worrying thing is the fact of a document checking and whether they have a legal document or not. So even though the immigration department has given a moratorium against detention, they are not actually going to deport anybody right now. This is really a big fear. There is difference in the messaging from what the ministers and the people in power are saying and what's actually happening on the ground because they say in the ground that police officers are checking passports and the like. So all this does not engender a lot of trust to authorities, so they may not come back in. There's been so much nationalism going around the world. Do you find there's a lot of sympathy for these vulnerable groups? I think Singapore has its fair share of basically the equivalent of America first. But with the migrant workers, perhaps the plight has been just so sorrowful that there's been such an outpouring of support and this call for better living conditions, better dormitories and better social protection. To be honest, I was really surprised. It's quite out of character because typically many countries would be more concerned about their own citizens. What is it like in your own countries, in Philippines and in Malaysia? We're not there yet in terms of compassion for migrant workers. This is new to us. Many of us may actually owe an apology to the way some of the workers are treated here. For a lot of Filipinos to see suddenly establishments that are catering mostly to Chinese and the signs are now in Chinese, sometimes it breeds fear. And so some of our folks here may have felt you know, feel safe. You mentioned nationalism and maybe it's a specter of that. But I do feel that 
given time, there will be that ability to understand and show compassion and to see them, to see them as human beings. It's something we have to get better at. Talking here more on a human-to-human level, apart from the legislation and the legal frameworks, and us being able to recognize the basic dignity that we want to honor. We have something a bit more complex going on. So this is the rise of xenophobia against refugees. Rohingya refugees are coming into Malaysia on boats. And this has been happening for a long time, but during the lockdown for COVID-19, the borders have been closed. So one particular boat was actually sent back to Bangladesh. Somehow the sentiment on the ground on social media and so on has been of hate. Why are these people coming into the country? They will be bringing in disease. This is not the right time. We have not enough resources for them. You know, that kind of thing. So... This kind of negative sentiments, unfortunately, if it's spread out of control, it could affect a larger group of like 5 million people in Malaysia. So how can we make things better moving forward? And how has COVID-19 given us opportunities to accelerate that? There are three ways that I think it can improve. Looking at the Philippines, there have been some very interesting judicial improvements during this crisis. Suddenly, there's this ability from the system to use technology. They started allowing remote hearings to ensure that the rights of persons are protected. If there are people that need to have a bail hearing or if there are victims that need to be brought before a prosecutor to swear their oath, that can be done. They've been using Zoom in the Department of Justice. And the Supreme Court was very quick to issue uh, rules that would guide this process. Typically, rules take years to draft. I'm also looking at administrative and regulatory frameworks and how there are certain cross-cutting themes that improve protection in the way a rising tide will lift all boats. So a concrete example would be if in the wake of COVID-19, there is heightened regulatory activity for public health purposes. That also opens the door for identifying endangered persons and potential victims of different types of crimes, or identifying specific labor conditions that need to be improved in a particular sector to improve the public health response or preparedness of this particular industry. And then finally, it might be good to provide basic instructions on the indicators of victimization, or potential cases of trafficking or other forms of exploitation to inspectors so that if necessary, they can leverage the power of law enforcement and deterrence to protect victims. I think this is a good time for us to think about our legislature again and how it's enforced. Employment should be more favorable with fair wages, health and social security benefits. We have fantastic laws, things like housing, occupational safety. The problem with our laws is the enforcement of those laws. That is an issue. The sentiment in Malaysia right now is, why do we have so many migrant workers? Do we really need them? We should reduce our dependence on them. We should send them back. But actually, when you think about it, who is going to send them back? And who will pay to send them back? You know, and Who is going to take the jobs that they are currently doing? Exactly. We're opening up our industries. And what does that mean? You know, we need workers for our factories. We need construction workers. We need the migrant workers. And the jobs that they are doing, Malaysian citizens do not want to do. So... The only way for that is to improve the conditions, improve the pay and the benefits so Malaysians would want to do those jobs. Post-COVID-19, we still have to deal with the situation of undocumented workers. 
I would say there's no easy solution, but we can learn from our neighbouring countries. A good example would be the one-stop centre, the OSCs in Thailand. The Thais actually regularise their undocumented workers in a one-stop centre. They do nationality verification, they issue work permits, and they provide health insurance. So basically a regularization of the workers rather than criminalizing the workers. Over here in Singapore, I think that there is quiet confidence that the country will prevail over the current COVID crisis, even as we report hundreds of new cases every day. And I think the more fundamental question then is, what happens after this? And as has been said, never waste a good crisis. And we certainly hope that this crisis creates the opportunities to have a more enabling and a more equitable framework that will allow the workers to enjoy the dignity that all of us enjoy as citizens and as human beings. So it's going to be a really long journey for all of us as we tie through the current acute COVID-19 crisis and all the inadequacies that COVID-19 had very amply demonstrated. And that after that, the work of advocacy, the work of rebuilding from the ashes and building into something much, much better. This is Tarani Loganadan. Since we recorded this podcast, there has been significant changes in Malaysia. The Prime Minister in his Labour Day speech to the country announced that almost all sectors of the economy, with certain exceptions, would reopen on the 4th of May. Also on the 1st of May, the police, immigration and army conducted a large-scale mass arrest of undocumented migrants with 586 men, women and children arrested and detained. This negated earlier statements and assurances to provide amnesty for those found without documents during the COVID-19 pandemic. The situation for migrant workers in Malaysia is looking exceptionally bleak from the point of view of public health, as the securitization of health will force vulnerable people underground and towards being less cooperative with public health measures like case detection and contact tracing. Currently, public health specialists, legal professionals and civil society activists have voiced their concern on these measures. And we hope that the government takes note that inclusivity is the best approach for all people in Malaysia, including non-citizens.